Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. A very detailed and at times scathing report about sexual abuse in Illinois' Catholic churches was released a few days ago by Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. The report includes details on every credible abuse report there's been in the last several decades in every Illinois diocese, including the Catholic Diocese of Peoria, which has had 51 priests or brothers accused since 1946. Here's part of a news conference a few days ago by the Illinois Attorney General. We are here this morning to announce my office's report on a multi-year investigation into child sex abuse by members of the Catholic clergy in the state of Illinois. And this is our report. This report represents the state of Illinois' first comprehensive accounting of child sex abuse by members of the Catholic clergy in the six dioceses across Illinois, including the Diocese of Belleville, Joliet, Peoria, Rockford, Springfield, and the Archdiocese of Chicago. This investigation began in the latter half of 2018 under the leadership of then Attorney General Lisa Madigan. Even before I was sworn into office, I committed to continuing the investigation that my predecessor had initiated. Throughout the investigation, we had two goals. First, to obtain and provide a full public accounting of substantiated child sex abuse committed by Catholic clergy within the state of Illinois. Second, to give survivors an opportunity to be heard, recognizing that some of these survivors have spent decades, decades on their path to healing. From the outset of the investigation, uh, the leaders of the Illinois Diocese pledged their full support and cooperation in assisting my office towards achieving these goals. Each ultimately fulfilled their pledge by providing access and working on policies and procedures. During our investigation, my attorneys and investigators examined thousands of files, reviewing more than 100,000 100, pages of documents held by the diocese. They spent endless hours engaged in interviews and conversations with diocesan uh, leadership and representations. Uh, cooperation from the diocese aside, it was the survivors of child sex abuse who gave purpose and drive to this investigation. Absent their courage and willingness to come forward and discuss their experience, there would be no true investigative report. Over the course of this investigation, my office received more than 600 confidential contacts from survivors through emails, letters, in-person interviews, and phone calls. My investigation team prioritized treating each allegation with respect. They followed every lead that arose to ensure we conducted a thorough and comprehensive investigation. My team worked closely with survivors to record accounts of their experiences as children sexually abused by Catholic clerics. 
So I would like to express my sincere gratitude to each and every survivor and to others who contacted my office for trusting us with their deeply personal experiences. Before the, this investigation, the Catholic Diocese of Illinois publicly listed only 103 substantiated sex, child sex abusers, which substantiated meaning that available evidence supported the conclusion that cleric, the cleric or religious brother committed child sex abuse. Now by comparison, this report reveals the names and detailed information of 451 Catholic clerics and religious brothers who abuse at least 1,997 children across all of the dioceses in the state of Illinois. This means that our investigation led to the disclosure of 348 more clerics than prior to our investigation. Now, there are 149 clerics that this report discloses that are not disclosed by the diocese. This report is organized into five sections. The first section explains the long-term impact of child sex abuse, which is particularly critical in this context. The second details each diocese's historic handling of child sex abuse and specifically how inaction by Catholic bishops and archbishops often led to scores of abused children. The section also includes detailed narrative accounts of child sex abuse committed by Catholic clerics. Many of these narratives are told from the survivor's point of view, written in consultation with the survivor and based upon their experience. The third section covers diocese policies and practices related to allegations of child sex abuse. Our team had multiple conversations with uh, various members of each diocese. This section includes concerns my office raised with the diocese about their policies, revealing how the diocese often modified their policies to address these concerns. When agreement couldn't be reached for modifications, our office made recommendations. The fourth section discusses data analysis undertaken by my office with a recognized data expert showing the extent of child sex abuse by clerics in each Illinois diocese year by year over a 70 year period. Data expert Greg Ridgway reviewed the data that our office compiled. Significantly, the Analysis reveals that each Illinois diocese underreported the number of child sex abusers in the Catholic clergy when they initially released those numbers to the public. And finally, one of the most important sections of the report, my office's recommendations to the diocese for the handling of future child sex abuse allegations against the Catholic clerics and religious brothers. This section of our report is distinguishable from 
similar re reports issued by other states, not only because it's survivor-centered, but also because it contains 50 pages of detailed recommendations, such as how the diocese can address investigations and disclosures of child sex abuse, how the diocese can implement a mediation and compensation program for survivors, how the diocese can improve their investigations, how the diocese can better communicate with survivors, and how the diocese can be more transparent in publicly disclosing substantiated child sex abusers. This investigation has directly resulted in significant steps forward in the diocese policies related to investigations, disclosure and transparency, and survivor care and communication. Decades of Catholic leadership decisions and policies have allowed known child sex abusers to hide, often in plain sight. And because of the statute of limitations has frequently expired, many survivors of child sex abuse at the hands of Catholic clerics will never see justice in a legal sense. But it is my sincere hope that this report will shine light on those who violated their positions of power and trust to abuse innocent children and on the men in church leadership who covered up that abuse. These perpetrators may never be held accountable in a court of law, but by naming them in this report, the intention is to provide the public with accountability public accountability and a measure of healing to survivors who have long suffered in silence. Our office takes every instance, instance of reported child abuse seriously, and I believe the breadth of this 700-page report invinces that. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. You can read the full report at WMBDradio.com. More Week in Review coming up. Governor J.B. Pritzker and his Democrat colleagues, House Speaker Emanuel Chris Welch and Senate President Don Harmon, announced a few days ago they've reached an agreement on a new state budget. As of the date the show is being recorded, not many specific details were known, and budget bills had not yet been filed with the legislature. The governor claims the budget expands on the successful turnaround in state finances, increases spending in needed areas, and shouldn't be a problem with Republicans. In years past, the GOP has derided the continued increases in spending, while claiming Democrats have rammed budget bills through the legislature with little to no time to review the bills, before a vote. Nonetheless, here's at least what the governor has to say about the agreement from a few days ago. We have an agreement on a balanced budget for the coming year. From the beginning, I vowed to work with the General Assembly and restore fiscal sanity to state government after decades of mismanagement, to eliminate the overdue bill backlog, to pay down debt, and to reduce the structural deficit to do so while restoring a compassionate state government that works to meet the needs of Illinois' residents and invests in the things that build a stronger economy and a stronger future. And I'm pleased to say that that's exactly what this balanced budget does for the fifth time in a row. Our record is clear. 
$10.5 billion of debt paid down, including $450 million in this budget alone to pay off old tobacco settlement bonds, provide additional pension payments, and another $90 million in this budget to further reduce accounts payable. Once at almost $16 billion, our overdue bills have been eliminated. Our empty rainy day fund is now on its way to more than $2 billion. GDP has grown to above $1 trillion. And we've received multiple credit upgrades from every ratings agency. Each of these accomplishments have set a solid foundation for responsible budget making. And it has allowed us to build this year's budget one that is very similar to what I proposed in February, centering on Illinois' hardworking families at every turn. This budget means that over the next few years, every child in Illinois who wants one will have access to a preschool spot, thanks to our transformative Smart Start plan. This budget means that we're on a path to eliminating childcare deserts, relieving some of the burden on parents who need to work while ensuring kids get quality care. This budget means that every working class Illinoisan can get a community college education tuition free and fee free. And with our pioneering Illinois grocery store initiative and home Illinois plan, we're providing Illinois residents and families access to healthy foods and safe housing. From violence prevention, higher K-12 funding, and filling teacher vacancies, to more workforce development and enhanced behavioral health services, this budget makes historic investments that will benefit our state for years to come. As governor, it's my job to not just look at what's right in front of us, but to prepare for what's ahead five, 10, 50 years down the road. And like the past four budgets, this budget looks toward the future, a future where every child gets a quality education from cradle to career, and where every parent has access to the childcare and training that they need to get a better paying job. A future where every Illinoisan has a safe place to call home and a safe community to live in. A future where economic security means the opportunity for anyone and everyone to prosper. With each responsible, balanced budget, that is the future that we create. And I will be proud to sign this budget when it arrives on my desk. To President Don Harmon, to Speaker Chris Welch, Speaker Pro Tem Jahan Gordon Booth, and Senate Majority Caucus Appropriations Leader L.G. Sims, thank you for your steadfast leadership throughout this legislative session. It's been a long couple of months, but today's proposed final budget is a testament to your advocacy and labor on behalf of your members and their constituents. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Senate President Don Harmon. Thank you, Governor. I'd like to start uh, with a compliment to the hardworking staffs of both chambers and the governor's office for all the work they've done over the last few months and all the work they will inevitably do today and for the rest of this week to make this budget a reality. The agreement we've reached will produce another responsible, balanced budget that reinforces our state's economic stability while making progress on key issues for the people of Illinois. The Senate hopes 
we hope to take action tonight to be able to deliver the legislation to the House so that the House can act as soon as Friday to send it straight to the Governor. I applaud the trust and cooperation we've developed. I'm not sure either chamber in the past would have trusted the other chamber to adopt a budget without an amendment. I appreciate Speaker Welch's commitment. With this budget, we will continue to live up to our promise to better fund education at all levels while also providing resources to confront lingering social and health concerns, all while living within our means. I want to thank the Governor and Speaker Welch for their roles in this and look forward to being able to put the final touches and votes on a budget that keeps Illinois moving forward. And with that, it's an honor to introduce my friend and partner, Speaker Chris Welch. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am really proud to once again stand here alongside my friend, Governor Pritzker, and the Honorable Senate President, Senator Harmon, to announce that we do have a budget agreement. This budget is balanced, without gimmicks. It's balanced because of hard work and dedication of the governor's office, the House, and the Senate. This budget is fiscally responsible, and it's actually compassionate, too. We actually can walk and chew gum at the same time. We've proven that for the last four years, and we're going to prove that again here in the next couple of days. This budget will help save for our future. In this agreement, we're committing hundreds of millions of new investments into our rainy day fund and additional payments toward the pension stabilization fund. Democrats have done the work to earn our state eight credit upgrades and all three of us standing here today made the same commitment heading into these budget negotiations. And we will continue putting Illinois down a path toward fiscal stability when this budget is signed into law. This budget does what the people of Illinois sent us here to do. This budget also reflects our values as Illinoisans. It makes smart investments in the services people need, and it is compassionate. Something you've heard me continuously say is a top priority for House Democrats. I talk to them all the time about our why. I ask them to remember our why. We're here because we care about people. We can be fiscally responsible and compassionate, too because that's why the people send us here. In this budget, we are increasing funding for EBF, MAP grants, and we're making significant investments in early childhood education and daycare services so that every child has access to a quality education here in the state of Illinois. And for the second year in a row, for the second year in a row, we are increasing funding for local government distributed fund to help communities across the state fund essential services and programs like public health, safety, and basic infrastructures. I'm proud to stand here today with a budget that I know will expand opportunity and create a brighter future for generations to come. I want to thank Governor Pritzker and Senate President Harmon, but I also want to thank our new chief budgeteer in the House. I've never seen anyone work so hard as I've seen Leader Jahan Gordon Booth these last few months. 
I want to thank our appropriations chairs in the House. All of the work that has gone into those committees have led us to this day. But I also want to take a moment to thank our hardworking budget and research staff. They worked tirelessly to get us to this day. We are looking forward to continuing to cross the T's and dot the I's here in the next couple of hours so that we can get this agreed budget on the board and over to the House. We're ready to act. We're ready to do the people's work and continue to pass balanced budgets for the people of Illinois. Governor J.B. Pritzker, House Speaker Chris Welch, and Senate President Don Harmon. More Week in Review coming up. Almost two years after it was removed, the future of a statue of Christopher Columbus owned by the Peoria Park District is uncertain. The Peoria Park Board this week put off votes to sell the statue and replace it with something else. The statue was removed from Bradley Park amid controversy over the history of Columbus. WMBD's T.J. Carson talked about the matter with Peoria Park District Executive Director Emily Cahill. We have been having some back and forth and uh, conversations with the West West Council and the Upland Neighborhood Association, um, they are interested in um, having us reconsider returning that space to green space and looking at opportunities to place additional artwork in Upper Bradley Park. So last night we had a conversation with the board and uh, the board determined that their position at this time is that they will take no action until a formal proposal is submitted using the current statuary artwork and memorial policy of the park district and so we're just we're sort of paused at this point until we can figure out the best path forward um, but we look forward to an ongoing conversation with the west west council i'm actually going to reach out to them today to have some additional conversations just to work the process and make sure that we are doing this whole thing in an open and transparent way when you talk about a formal proposal, what does that entail? So currently our policy says that no public tax dollars will be used to purchase artwork. And when the community requests for artwork to be added to a location, they need to develop some sort of a proposal for how that uh, statue or artwork would be paid for. So what we need is really a, a better conversation with the West Bluff Council to talk about what that looks like. At this point, their requests to date have said, well, we just want you to figure out how to pay for it. And I, we understand that and we appreciate their, their position, but we need to find a way collaboratively to make sure that we are being the best stewards possible of the resources that we are stewards of. And that means that we need to find a path forward, whether that's through fundraising, whether that's through potentially the sale of the Columbus statue itself to help to fund a next piece of art. Those are all things that at this point we haven't, we haven't figured out what that path might look like. And the board really feels uncomfortable in trying to approve or disapprove a path without knowing exactly what it is that they're approving. I think that's the part they felt most uncomfortable with last night. And so that's the opportunity that if we can figure out together what that path might look like, then I think the board will feel much more comfortable moving forward. Is there an average cost for what a statue in that area could be? Or 
does it just depend on what the statue actually is? It does depend on what the statue is. And, TJ, that's part of our challenge, right, is that we are not generally in the business of we don't buy artwork all the time, right? We don't. I don't have a good handle on just what that looks like, and I'm, and I'm sure the West Bluff Council doesn't either. And so that, I think that's why we're kind of stuck. But our effort and my goal today is to certainly try to get us unstuck so that we can move this conversation forward and, and really get us to a decision-making point. Now, to go back to the Columbus statue for a moment, uh, what has happened to the statue since it was removed from the park? Um, it is in a secure location. Um, it has been stored safely so that it is in good condition. And at this point, we are just waiting on direction for how to proceed with its um, disposition one way or another. Did last night's board meeting determine its future in a way? Is there a possibility it could come back uh, to the park in the future, or is it just not going to return at all? Uh, the, the, the direction that we are operating under at this point is that it will not return to the park district. Um, it is still in our inventory. It is still owned by the park district. So, you know, there are a couple of paths here. One is to keep it in storage. Uh, one is to somehow either sell it or dispose of it in an appropriate way. Uh, the other would be to place it back into a public space. Um, board direction at this point is not to do the last thing. Um, we are trying to have the, the sculpture appraised to see um, what the potential value of it is. That's not something that we feel comfortable with assigning a value on our own and like anything else right it takes not only a, a value but also an interested buyer um, but those are all pieces that by policy we have a process so we have to determine its value then the board would have to vote to give us direction to try to sell it if that's the path they want to go and then we would actually have to find a buyer so this is not something that we will have completed by June 1st by any stretch. This is something that's going to take a while, and we're going to you know, use, like we always do, use due diligence to make sure that we are doing this in the, in the best possible way to support our community. And I think that remains to be seen as we work through the process. There's a lot of variables here that haven't been defined yet that we need to define before we can determine our path forward. Have you gotten any estimates back yet on how much it would be appraised for, or is that still being uh, worked out? So at this point, we're still um, trying to find an appraiser who has the expertise necessary to value a statue like this. Um, and so I think we're I think we're close to that, but my guess is it will be potentially midsummer before we have. A value for the statue and then that will come back to the board to get additional direction. Now you mentioned one other possibility for the statue was that it could be placed somewhere else in the city but that's not what the board desires. Is there a reason why the board is leaning in that direction? Well I think just based upon the feedback that we received from the community that led them to have the statue removed from Bradley Park in the fall of 2020. I don't know that that sentiment has changed. That would create a groundswell of support for placing it in a different park. I don't think its location was really the issue. I think that 
Christopher Columbus and the controversy that has come to surround him was really the issue that we tried to address and that the board responded to. Um, at this time, I, I don't see a path forward where Columbus would go back into a public space, but again, if the board determines that that's a path that they want to give us direction to do, then that's what we'll do. So it's more likely than not this statue, at least in Peoria, might not just see the light of day again. I think that's possible. I think that we're not alone in that, right? I think that when those sorts of decisions were made across the country, that was one of the reasons that locally people began to ask us to look at Columbus and began to ask if that's the the kind of public art that we wanted to have on display. And certainly the conversation was, as I said at the outset, very emotional and people feel very strongly on both sides of the issue. Ultimately, our board made the decision and gave the direction to remove the Columbus statue from Bradley Park. And I, I don't see necessarily that that sentiment has changed. Um, and so, again, the board will have to, as they always do, gather public input and make a, a really well-informed decision. And they, they take that responsibility very seriously to make a decision about what's best for the Park District, and they will do that. Peoria Park District Executive Director Emily Cahill talking with WMBD's T.J. Carson. More Week in Review coming up. A decision made a long time ago by Peoria government officials is being reversed. The city council this week voted to discontinue what's called reverse angle parking in parts of the downtown area near Peoria City Hall. That's where you back into a spot on an angle. WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio talked about that and another matter with Peoria City Council at-large member Zach Euler. When did we install the angled backward parking? Several years ago, but I can't. I get lost on it. 2015. 15? And what was the reason? Yeah, 2015. What was the reason? Uh, public Works Director at the time had gone to a conference, and that was, I guess, the big topic, that it was a safer solution to have folks back in and open their door to walk to, you know, wherever they were going rather than having to walk around the back end of the car into the street. Okay. But All right. it never actually turned out that way. <laughs> and that's the funny thing and, about And this was before I was on the council. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah, you you get yourself out of this. That's right. So Well, but the thing that's is hilarious. is the um <clears throat> You have to realize from a practical standpoint, our ability as humans to back up a car is terrible. No, we're not good at it. So, yeah. No. <laughs> so so that man, that person, whoever that public works person was, and I don't want to throw them under the bus, I'm sure that was a, a legitimate conversation that those folks, they, they look at lots of different things. But then when you start looking at the practicality of it, you realize that it's just not working the way we all thought it would work. So that leads us to today. I saw your social media post on it. What is now happening? Obviously, you know, this isn't one of the biggest issues we have in the city of Peoria, but it's one I get a whole lot of complaints about. And I started advocating in 2016 when I got elected that we needed to undo this. And we finally passed last night that it will be turned back the opposite direction. So the, the lines will be diag diagonally driven so that you drive forward facing the meters will be turned around and then we will do a recoding of the street you know you brought up a very good point 
And it goes back to when Art Kelly was the police chief and he was doing community policing. And he goes, well, we got all these big issues, but when you talk to the people, that's not what gets them PO'd. Oh, no, the, and it's the, like you as a councilman, Zach, right. you can think, oh, all these things, but it's the everyday little things in life that add up yeah. that probably dominate your phone calls. Uh, right. And several years ago, we managed to work it into a budget, and I painfully had to horse trade it out of that budget to get something else that we needed done that was more important at the time. But uh, we're finally going to make it happen this year. All right. Will there be a ceremony? I would like there to be yeah. some kind of a ceremony. The, that's what I said during the meeting did, last night. Did you? My comments on it. I said I may have to pull a permit to shut Fulton Street down so that we can have a celebration. Yeah. We can have a little party, like a little mini version of Taste of Peoria or the mayor's rib bib from back in the day. Or And then, and Zach, you could be the last guy to pull out of the backward parking spot and we cheer for you or something. That'd be cool. Hey, real quick, uh, the the two new buildings that are going to come online in the warehouse district, 800 and 801 Washington, uh, two more pieces to the puzzle. This will be huge for the downtown warehouse district area. And that, and that goes back to what we've been working on for the last couple of years with acquiring the land in the warehouse district. Because those buildings, you know, in their former life were manufacturing, and folks lived in the south end and walked to work. And now, you know, there, there's no vehicle parking in that area to be able to turn those into something useful. So they've sat dormant for decades. And now we finally have an opportunity to do that. We've got the land and the parking will start. And now we've got developers that are actually buying the building. That's fantastic. Good deal. All right, buddy. Thanks for the time. That is City Councilman Zach Euler, City of Peoria. Finally, another conversation with Greg and Dan. This one involves getting your kids signed up for an upcoming STEM Academy with Dave Johnson of Pearl Technologies. You were the man that said this word for the first time to me and Danny. Chat GPT. About eight, nine weeks ago, it seems to me. It wasn't that long ago. Yep. Never heard of it. Didn't know what you were talking about. And you explained this whole chat GPT and AI. And ever since then, it's an avalanche of information coming at us every single day. And we're all worried about it. We're having fun with it sometimes, but we're scared. You guys do a STEM Academy for middle schoolers. Yep. And that's coming up. And that's going to be part of it, right? It is. It's going to be a big part of it. Um, so we'll give them some background on artificial intelligence because obviously that's what Chat GPT is. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk specifically about Chat GPT and can how I, it works. Can I mm -hmm. stop you there? Is Chat GPT a company? It's, or a concept. It's a product name. Okay. The company is OpenAI. Okay. And so it's it's, the it's, it's their brand it. name. It is. Okay, but it's the number one, evidently. Uh, yeah. Well, Microsoft owns fifty percent of OpenAI. So okay, gotcha. Um, but anyway, you know, part of the dangers, and we've talked about, you know, what some of them are. So we'll, we'll get these sixth through eighth grade students, and the first day we'll teach them ethics. We'll teach them safety, security, um, kind of put guardrails around the whole chat GPT thing. Because it, it's important that they understand what dangers there are with it, but also that it's a tool that can be used very effectively for a number of things. Sure, sure. So we'll do that, but then we're going to actually have them build a device. It's a little single board computer about the size of a deck of cards. 
um, and we're going to connect a microphone and a speaker, and we're going to um, program um, speech to text because ChatGPT works on text. You, you type in your question, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. types out the answer. So the students will be able to speak into a microphone. It'll take their words and convert it to text, run it through ChatGPT, take the text that ChatGPT types out and convert it to speech. So it would be like an artificial intelligence Alexa. Wow. Yeah. Now, ironically, Apple just released an app I to saw, do this. Yeah, I saw that. Last week, yeah. So this is the same thing. It's the same thing. And this is your kid learning this, who is 6th, 7th, or 8th grade yes. in, that, in this academy. Absolutely. Right, we'll tell you how to get into it in a minute. We but, will. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about our academy is so we've got a lot of volunteers that are very, very smart people um, that work in the STEM field, right. you know, industry. And so we pair them up with students so students never have to struggle, you know, too own. hard on their yeah. own. And they get to chat and talk about what's it like to be an engineer at Caterpillar. And, um, you know, Cat's a big part of this with us now. Um, Corey Gorman, is he's leading this one. Um, and then we got Judy Schmidt from um, U of I Extension, the queen of STEM. She knows more and does more for STEM in and, our area. And here's what's crazy about this. You and those two people right there, mm-hmm. all smart people in this field, and you're going to talk to these young people, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, mm-hmm. who in 10 to 15 years will be smarter than you because because they're going to run at it. You know what some, I mean? Some of them are smarter than me now. <laughs> In fact, maybe but, the majority. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, if you're already predisposed for this, your child is already predisposed for mm-hmm. this. Their brain is already working that way. Yeah, they have the mindset yeah. that yeah. it's not it's, someone it, who's 50 coming out of left field. Yeah, because to them it's just like, "Oh, this is cool." Not what is this weirdness? That's what me and Dan think. What is this weirdness? They, they and they're going to run for the, with this AI, all this stuff. Will. Oh my gosh, it's going to be great. They How will. do you sign up? Okay, so it's uh, July seventeenth through the twenty first. Okay, from nine to noon at Goodwill Commons every day. Every day for those five, five days. Yeah. Um, Goodwill and, Commons, by the way, is a very beautiful building. It is. Nicely appointed with those classrooms. It's good. And they provide the for free for us. Nice. So when you donate your shirts and pants, yep. it helps go to this. So to register, you go to go.illinois.edu slash STEM Academy, one word. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.